Everyone's really loud. All right. Um, I am Kelsey Irwin, for those of you that don't know, and Bob lets me kind of do whatever I want in this last service, so bear with me. Uh, <laughs> but I wanted to start out just to have a little bit of reflection time um, as we think about 2019 coming to a close. And so last year during uh, this portion, I, I talked a little bit about Jacob in the Old Testament and how he wrestled with God. And so today, I want to fast forward just a little bit further in the book of Genesis and look at Jacob's son, Joseph. Um, <clears throat> now, most of us know a few vague facts about Joseph, um, and we can tell a little bit about his story. We know that he was his father's favorite and that he had the Technicolor dream coat, right? Um, that's not what it is called in the Bible. But, um, and his brothers hated him for all of that, and so they sell him into slavery and tell his dad that he's dead. Um, he ends up in Potiphar's house. He has that whole issue with Potiphar's wife, um, who isn't even dignified with a name in the Bible. She's just Potiphar's wife. Um, he gets thrown in jail. He interprets dreams. Um, and he's consistently faithful to God during this time. Um, and eventually, he becomes, per Pharaoh's words, this is what Pharaoh says, in charge of all of the land of Egypt. So he does pretty well. Um, by the end of this. And then he gets this brilliant moment in the end where his brothers come um, and he gets to redeem all of what has happened um, and they have to bow down to him and ask him for help. So we say it like that. We tell it that fast, but really it's, it's only nine chapters of the Bible, um, his story. But he was 17 when he was sold into slavery by his brothers. And scholars believe when his brothers came, um, and asked for help that he was 41 years old about around that time. So we, those nine little chapters, and we tell it so fast, that's 24 years for Joseph, 24 years of his life, um, having been sold by his brothers, not knowing if his father is living, 24 years of suffering. Um, so he knew a thing or two about suffering. And in Genesis 45, I just want to read the first portion here. The first eight chapters, if you, if you want to, you can look. Um, but it says, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out. Um, oh, so this is when his brothers are there, and he's about ready to reveal himself to them. They, they still don't know that this is Joseph. Um, and he cries out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. So he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And you know who weeps like that is someone who knows a thing or two about suffering. 24 years worth of it. And yet, as he wipes the tears from his cheeks, he says to his brothers, come close to me. And then he says, but God. 
So even after all of this suffering, he is able to see the goodness and sovereignty of his God in that time. And for those of us pursuing God, we can recognize his sovereignty even in our suffering. We can both weep so loudly that people hear us, but then also in that suffering be able to say, but God. Our churches and our world need real people that are willing to hold both our suffering and God's sovereignty together. Even Jesus experienced um, the pain of crucifixion and the rebirth of resurrection. So I want to start off by just taking a little bit of time to reflect on this year, um, and more importantly, on your faith journey this year. And maybe you feel like you're weeping more at this point than you'd want to be. Um, and please don't run from that. Joseph didn't. So fully engage with our kind God right now and maybe ask that he would reveal to you the but God that is coming or the but God that maybe has already come that you haven't fully looked at. Um, and just ask that he would encourage you in the waiting of that time. Um, I'm going to have a few slides during this time. So the first is going to be um, a little spoken word poet by someone named, her name's Jackie Hill Perry, um, where she talks about suffering in Joseph a little bit. Um, and then I'll have a few questions on a slide and then just some simple psalms for you to reflect during this time and think about this past year um, and maybe what God has been revealing to you or speaking to you um, before we move into um, today's message and then what we're going to be thinking about as we move into 2020.
Um, I was praying a while back and asking um, just kind of what God might have for me to share with you all today. I mean, I kept landing on this thought that we'd be gathering after a time of celebration, after Christmas, after Advent, um, which in the liturgical sense is a time of revival in the church. Um, and I grew up Southern Baptist, so I know how to revival with the best of you all. Like we had the, the actual tent revivals, you know, in the church parking lot. So, um, <clears throat> so let's all go outside. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but as an adult, I've realized whether there are organized functions or not, we're always kind of entering and exiting seasons of revival in our lives. Um, and the word revival means an improvement in the condition or strength of something, to make something important again. And so that's why the church calls what we do revival, because we are making Christ important again. We want to renew our strength um, in Christ during that time. Um, and so that is what we see happening a lot in the church during seasons of Advent or Lent. Um, and a lot of times at the end of that, we say, okay, so we had a revival, now what? We're kind of in this now what phase of what even comes next. And maybe for some of you during the season of Advent, you felt like you had a true revival. Um, you feel renewed in your commitment to follow God, and you feel refreshed um, by celebrating the, com the coming of, of Christ. Um, and maybe some of you met Christ for the first time during Christmas season. Um, and maybe some of you feel left with unmet expectations. Um, and you, you wanted to be refreshed in your soul, and you just weren't. Um, and so you come here today wondering, now what? Um, <clears throat> but here's the thing. Today, we're all in different places. Um, some of us might be, you know, in the mountaintop or the valley, and, but a lot of us are just in that in-between phase. Um, and what I'm realizing is that so much of our life is lived in that in-between, in the ordinary time. Um, and actually, uh, Cameron, if you'd put that slide up, this is, if you're not familiar with uh, church liturgy, um, what we just celebrated was Advent and then Christmas, and technically we're still kind of at the end of Epiphany, but if you look at the green space there, it's called ordinary time is what the church calls it when you're not in that season of celebration. So eventually we'll go into the season of Lent in the spring and then Easter and Pentecost and all that. But most of the time, if you look at that, the biggest chunk of time there um, is called ordinary time. And I hate that. I hate, like, I'm a person who likes to celebrate and have fun. Um, and I don't like the idea of just living in ordinary time. Um, but <clears throat> what I've found is also in the middle of our very ordinary lives, it can feel hard to connect with or believe in an extraordinary God. Sometimes when around us, um, we're celebrating, it's easy to feel like, yeah, yeah, let's, let's get on board with this, let's celebrate God. But in ordinary time, it can feel hard. Um, I have a friend who has some major health issues and she's even said, I'm kind of nervous to be healthy again because I've learned to depend on God so much in my sickness. Um, I've had friends who have lived overseas serving God and, and things have happened and they've had to move back and, and they're afraid to move back. Um, they're terrified to return to normal into the ordinary because they felt like they heard God's voice so clearly when things were in upheaval. It's the in-between, the ordinary, the now what. And here's the deal. I think we have been trained our whole lives to respond to stimulus, to respond to feelings. 
So when the feeling isn't there or the stimulus isn't there, the Christmas celebration, the sickness, the miracle, um, the revival, when that's removed, we think God has been removed too. Our experience tells us to only believe our experience. Our feelings tell us to only believe our feelings. But if we claim the name of Christ, that means that we claim the gospel as our experience. So let me flesh this out a little bit for you. This means that we get to use scripture as our compass. We use scripture as the stimulus that propels us forward. And if we are deciding to use scripture as our guide, we must know scripture, we must read scripture, and we must study scripture. Um, and if you've been around many women in this church um, this past year, we've, a lot of us have done Bible studies by a Bible teacher named Jen Wilkin. Um, actually, new ones starting in January if you want to join us. But one thing that she says at the beginning of all of her studies is this. She says, the heart cannot know, or sorry, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. <clears throat> so let's think for a minute how Jesus responded to the Pharisees in the New Testament when they came to him and they said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? This is in uh, Matthew 22, and I'll just read it for us real quick. It says, Matthew 22, verse 36. Uh, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Heart, soul, mind. Now hang with me real quick. Um, in the Hebrew, there was no separate word for heart and mind. So um, Jesus is actually referring to a passage in the Old Testament from Deuteronomy 6 here. Um, and what he would have been referring to was this image was to convey with one's whole person. So, but when, when us modern readers read the word heart, we, we immediately want to attach feelings or emotions with the word heart because that's just what we do. But in the biblical reality and the Hebrew reality, the heart was just for pumping blood. It was just a part of the body. Um, so to love God with all our heart in the biblical translation here and in the Old Testament meant to love God with our understanding and our mind, our whole self. Because the Bible, because God, knows that our feelings are fickle. He knows that our emotions cannot be trusted, but God also knows that he is not fickle. He knows, um, there's a passage in 2 Timothy, it says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness <coughs> so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And you know what that verse tells me? That verse tells me that God's word is not fickle, and I can trust it when I cannot trust my feelings. Um, there's a Bible verse that we don't talk about much. I, if you have this hanging up, like, beautiful in your house, let me know, because I've never seen it any, in anyone's house. Jeremiah 17, 9. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond all cure. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond all cure. Merry Christmas. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but our hearts lie to us, and our feelings can lie to us. And this is not um, what culture tells us right now. 
Uh, I think culture is doing a phenomenal job of telling us and our children to follow their hearts. Um, and I think we're selling self-care and uh, self-help by the cartload, and we're laughing it up because we want to believe that our hearts are mostly good. We want to believe that we deserve these things. Um, and I'm only 33, but the more that I read God's word, the more that I understand it's all a gift. Um, and I don't deserve anything, um, especially the greatest gift of mercy and grace that was extended to me on the cross. Um, and in light of that message, I'm learning that I don't need a bubble bath and a manicure to care for myself. What I need is Jesus. And um, I feel like following Christ a lot of times can feel more like self-sabotage than self-help or self-care. Um, it may feel more like taking up my cross daily and dying to myself because above all things, the heart is deceitful. But the good news, though, is this. In 1 John 3, 19 and 20, it says this. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. And in Romans 12, it says that we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so this is why we must be reading the Bible for ourselves. We must be able to separate truth from lies. Follow your heart sounds like a good message until you understand your heart from a biblical perspective. Um, 2 Timothy 4.3 says that there will come a time when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And we may not be the ones that are gathering these teachers around us. Um, I think we have some pretty wise leaders in place that would prevent that. Um, but because of the world we live in, we're going to hear those voices. Um, and we need to be reading the Bible for ourselves so that we um, know if it's biblically true or if it's just something that sounds good. And even if they're teachers we trust, we can't just rely on others to read the Bible and then listen to something that they wrote or that they're preaching. We need to be reading it for ourselves. The Bible says we are to renew our minds. Um, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. So we must be devoting ourselves, mind, body, soul, to this book um, that Hebrew says is alive and active. Um, it says it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Our hearts are deceitful and our hearts condemn us, but God is greater than our hearts and his word is alive and active and able to penetrate the attitudes of our hearts, which I think is a beautiful truth. Um, so I think any good Bible teacher is also going to tell you that we need to learn to read the Bible um, when we focus on God and not ourselves. This, book, this is a book about God. Um, so, and what I mean by that is if we claim the name of Christ, that means that we are claiming the gospel as our experience, like I said. So what I mean by that is God's story becomes our story. Christ becomes our substitute. Our feelings and even our circumstances, even though they are absolutely real, don't hear me not saying that that's not true. Our feelings, um, our pain is very real. But just like Joseph, 
it's no longer what matters most because God's word is ours to claim. And it is true and it is permanent and it is what will last forever, even when our circumstances won't. So the gospel story from Genesis to Revelation, I just combined Genesis and Revelation, generation. Uh, from the gospel story from Genesis to Revelation is for the moment that I'm stepping out of and the moment I'm walking into because it's not about me, it's about God. And when we learn to read the Bible with our, our hearts set, our minds set on him and not on us, his word is alive and active, and with the Holy Spirit, it will penetrate the attitudes of our hearts. Um, so, for example, when I read about Abraham climbing the mountain to sacrifice his son Isaac, I read that story not to see myself in it, but I read that story to see God. And when I do that, I see a God who provides a ram in the bushes. And when I read the story of Joshua marching around Jericho, I don't read that story to see myself in that story. I read it to see God, and when I do that, I see a God who promised to get them to the promised land, and I see a God who is faithful to fulfill that promise. And when I read about the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, I don't read to see myself in that story. I read to see God in that story, and when I do that, I see a God who will heal. And so I seek the healer instead of the healing. And when I read about the woman at the well, and I read to see God in that story, Sorry, I read, I see that there is a God who will redeem any story. So we always want to read with God in mind before ourselves. And the Bible will show us what is real more than what we feel if we approach it in that way. Deuteronomy 8.3 says that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And listen, in the valley, in those times that we are suffering or going through some very real grief, we are desperately hungry for bread. And <clears throat> it is my hope that during our ordinary time that we would be people who devote ourselves to the word of God, to the real bread, capital B, so that when we find ourselves hungry in the valley, we have food that will sustain us. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And so we come to Jesus through the scriptures. Um, about two years ago, I went through um, a pretty deep loss. And during that time, I found myself running the scripture. I spent a lot of time in Hebrews, um, reading about a high priest and who was there for me, about someone who was the anchor for my soul. And an interesting thing, I was reading in Hebrews, and out to the side in my Bible, um, my friends make fun of me because I write all over my Bible, but um, I had written some lyrics to a song by Aaron Ivey, and this is, what I had, this is what I wrote. May you plant us in your mercy, may your words supply the branches, so when the fire comes, you'll keep us green. May you plant us in your mercy, may your words supply the branches. So when the fire comes, you'll keep us green. And there I was in the fire, but being kept green by the truth of Scripture. Faith without deeds is dead, and this following Christ is about faith and verbs. Um, I was an English teacher before I decided to stay home, and I often talked about dead verbs in our writing. 
and now you're all like falling asleep because grammar is the worst, right? Um, but I'm almost done, so hang with me. But dead verbs are kind of tricky to spot. They are verbs in a sentence that aren't really doing anything, okay? They're flat, they're lifeless. They, they kind of get the sentence from point A to point B, but they, they're not really doing much. Um, and I've realized that that's a lot of times how my faith verbs can be. They have the appearance of doing something, but in actuality, they're useless and they're lifeless. I want my faith verbs to actually matter in the sentences of my life, to move everything forward towards his kingdom come. And that living faith requires us to hear the words of God, to look at scripture. And faithful obedience to our God through time spent in the scripture um, will never return void. It will always be planting or reaping something. It will always move things forward. I think 20 or 30 years ago, um, the church was really heavy on some pretty big have-tos and have-not-tos, whatever, you know what I'm saying. Um, but the, the things that we like to call legalism, right? And so I think a lot of us um, were burnt out by those lists and the guilt that we associated with them. And so we, so we decided we're just going to get rid of all of it. Um, and I think what happened was now we fear being legalistic. And so a lot of times that leads to us no longer fearing God. When we start to fear being legalistic. Um, it is not legalism to say that as Christians we are commanded to read our Bible. I love this verse in 1 John 5 too. I think I have it on a slide. Hey, I do. Um, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. They're not burdens. What he asks us to do is not a burden. It's for our good. <clears throat> Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. So what comes first? Our complete reverence and fear of an all-powerful and all-knowing God. We come to scripture because we want to know that God. We don't come to scripture because we want knowledge. We come to scripture because we want to know God and do what he says. Hear me on this. What is inside of our brain will not save us from what is inside of our hearts. What is inside of our brain will not heal us from what is inside of our hearts. Only Jesus' blood can save us from that. And what Jesus has done is and will forever be enough to please God. So we fear God. And because we highly esteem him, we want to know him. And we want to do what he says. And we must be faithful to coming to meet with him in the pages of our Bible. And so, guys, we read scripture in the ordinary days in the now what days, in the days after revival. We read scripture when our feelings tell us um, that we don't need to be, when our hearts deceive us and tell us we're fine. We read scripture when culture tells us we should be doing other things to better care for ourselves. We read scripture so that we can claim the gospel as our story. We read scripture with our minds set on God before ourselves. We read scripture, we read scripture, we read scripture. 
Um, and I started out talking about revival, and another definition for revival is interesting. It is a new production of an old play or similar work when you revive something. You know what we're reproducing when we have revival in our churches? You know what old work we're pointing to again? The word of God, the gospel story. <clears throat> so we had a revival of sorts during the season of Advent. Now what? And like I said, whether you feel you had a true revival experience or you feel like you're left with unmet expectations, our now what is to go back to the original play, the original work. Our now what is to be devoted to reading scripture. And I want to kind of wrap up a little bit with this picture. Um, author Rachel Jankovich posted this on her Instagram and with this caption. She said, I drive by this little farming accident every day, and it is always interesting to me how this disaster, a grain truck fire, brought about a flurry of new life. Today I was thinking how like common Bible reading problems this picture is. How often do Christians faced with some trial or disaster turn to the word suddenly, all in a heap? How often do we try to dig in deep suddenly but not keep it up? How much of our life is bare field, untended, with a pile of grain in one place? We may see life and growth because it is unstoppably full of life, but it also isn't the given pattern for planting, for maturing, for harvesting. No farmer who cares about his crops would do this on purpose because we all know this wheat will not come to harvest. One of the most helpful things for me personally was making the decision that I was going to be a woman of the word and understanding that this intention was going to take a certain kind of non-flashy, ordinary, boring, consistent faithfulness. It takes a lot of seeds spaced out in a lot of rows with lots of rainy days and hot days and dry days and harvest days. It is normal and ongoing and at the end of a lot of time, wildly fruitful. So keep your eye on the big picture. Faithfully plant, faithfully wait, faithfully harvest. God's word will not return void in your life, but it will accomplish the thing for which he sent it. And Romans 15:4 says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And later in that same chapter in verse 13, Paul writes, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So my challenge to us today, <clears throat> as we face this new year, as we go into 2020, whether you're brand new here or know a lot more about the Bible than I do, let's be men and women of the word who read with our mindset on God that that very God may continually fill us. When we are suffering, may we weep so loudly that those outside hear us, but may we come back to scripture so that the but God of the gospel overflows us with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So to end our service, <clears throat> we have a couple of things we're gonna do. And the first is communion. Um, we intentionally don't do communion during the season of Advent. Advent is um, about the anticipation of the coming of our Savior. It's about building that biblical um, expect expectation um, and that hope. And now he's here, Jesus, the light of the world. He's come. And so we'll receive communion again. And the Israelites that came after Joseph, they knew a thing or two about waiting. Um, they waited in Egypt for their freedom. And one of the last plagues while they were waiting was the plague of darkness. 
a darkness that was all-consuming. Um, last year when I was reading in Exodus, I noticed this passage in Exodus 10. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. All the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. And as these Israelites gathered around the last remaining light, they were foreshadowing for us the rest of the story. They were foreshadowing for us the light that was coming into our darkness, the light that we just celebrated at Christmas. And so today as we receive communion, let's remember the light that fills the darkness that we just celebrated. Um, and then lastly, we are going to participate in something that's become a bit of a tradition around here. Um, we are going to write on our rocks. Um, and if you are new here, I'll explain it. But to obey God's commands that aren't burdensome, we have to remember, um, we have to sit and remember often God's faithfulness because um, we are forgetful people. In the Old Testament, we see people all the time building altars to God to remember, to remember, to remember God's faithfulness. And so we like to take this time um, at the end of the year to remember God's faithfulness in our life. And so what you're going to do um, is come up after, you'll come up and receive communion, and then there's two tables on either side, so whichever way is easiest for you. And there are rocks, I feel like a light attendant, um, but there are rocks and then Sharpies at each table. And think of a word or two words that you could write down um, that will help you remember something about God's character or God's faithfulness or maybe something he's called you into this year that when you see that rock um, on your windowsill or on your dashboard or wherever you want to put it this year, you will remember God's faithfulness. Um, and, and you will remember the God that pushes back that darkness and that came to be light. And you will remember a God that calls you into things that are not burdensome, right? Um, so you can write a word, and if you can't think of one while you're up here, just take it with you and you can do it when you're home. You don't have to stand up here for 25 minutes. Um, but we do want you to take those rocks with you. Don't leave them on the table. They're for you to be able to see. So <clears throat> maybe you need to... Um, I'll give you just a little bit of time to think before we before the um, they start dismissing you to come up here. But uh, take some time to be still, and take some time. Maybe you need to lay down some expectations that you had. Um, maybe you need to thank God for somewhere in your life that was barren that He's made beautiful again this year. Um, thank Him for pushing back the darkness, and maybe you're still in the darkness, and you need to ask Him to start shining some light. And take some time to reflect on this past year and what word or word will help you remember his faithfulness. Um, I'm going to put up a slide uh, during this time just to help us. It's by Paul David Tripp about the importance of remembering in our faith journey to help you reflect. And after a little time of silence, the ushers are going to uh, begin dismissing by Rose, and you can take communion first and then move to the rocks. Um, and, and it's just my prayer that, that as we sit in this time and move through this time, that we would really reflect on who God is um, 
who he's been to us this year. And maybe this year was a lot of suffering, like Joseph. Um, and you're really struggling to see the but God. Um, and it's just my prayer that you would faithfully and diligently come to the word of God to meet him there this year um, and see that he is a God um, that just wants to bring light into your life. So let's pray. God, uh, just thank you for this past year, um, just for being present in it with us and for already being present in the year ahead as, as we take our, our steps into it, God. Uh, the Bible says that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And God, I just pray that we would choose to let that um, be the light that guides us as we take each step forward. And um, God, I just ask that everyone here would be able to see you fully um, for who you are and just for the goodness and kindness um, that you want to bring into our lives, even in the midst of our suffering, God, that we would be able to, to lean in close to you and know that, um, that your story is bigger and that we get to, to be a part of it, God. We just thank you for this time. In your name we pray.